Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. We're going to start with a question here that we left off with last week. And it, it uh, says, during the worship conference, you and Shelley Hamilton both expressed concern about the music of Sovereign Grace and Getty and Townend. You mentioned that Colonial was already using this music when you arrived. And you did not, did not think that it'd be wise to create a stir about it at the time. You further explained that the aforementioned music and artists continue to regress and mimic our culture. You and Shelley both indicated that it may soon be time to discontinue using this music. Do you think that time has come? And the person who shared this question shared their identity with me with an email between last Wednesday and this evening and said they'd like to uh, rearrange some of the thoughts in it to indicate that the, the final part there about uh, time to discontinue was more from Shelley's comments as she serves uh, in editorial advisement to the hymn books that are here in front of us, the Majesty uh, hymn books. And so that came more from Shelley than from me. So uh, let me just kind of fill in some blanks along the way on this question and break it down for you. And it might be a, an illuminating time uh, for some here. So I've had past ministry outside of local church ministry. So when I was at Maranatha Baptist University, I had the responsibility of being able to guide even on the topic of what music will we use. Uh, the school at that time had some 300 plus churches that were sending students to the school. And so noting the constituency and always wanting to be in the ministry of being a peacemaker and not a confusion sender, uh, I know when I went there, uh, immediately I said, we're not using this particular music. And my burden for that was not to send students home uh, with any measure of license that they might impose on a church and bring uh, schisms and challenges because this discussion in many places is quite schismatic and quite challenging. So coming here to Colonial, just being transparent, I noticed, oh, Colonial is using that music. And there's an adage that most wise pastors have learned along the way, which is don't change anything your first year. If there's a dead body in the foyer, don't move it. Okay, that's, that's really good practical wisdom. So I try to live under that wisdom. And as I lived under that wisdom, what I discovered here, this hasn't been a topic of discussion or great concern within the church. And I think there's wisdom in understanding that as a pastor and listening for those things as we guide uh, the congregation that God has blessed us with. Uh, we are blessed, folks, I hope you know this, to have a congregation that has a sweet spirit and is not given to a whole lot of dissension. And I feel like part of my pastoral role here is to keep that spirit, that while we'll deal with things head on as we need to, and you've heard us do that, and some of that might even happen this evening, that we want to have a church where uh, there's a sweet reasonableness within the congregation. And sometimes the pastor, uh, by being overly overt on things that may not be as necessary as he thinks them to be, can stir the waters. And I believe here's another pastoral principle that leads to my direction tonight. The 23rd Psalm says, He leads me beside the still waters. If I were a sheep, I wouldn't want to drink out of a flowing creek either. I mean, they're made of wool. They don't swim really well. And what you learn from that little picture in the 23rd Psalm is the sheep feed best when the waters are not stirred. And so as a pastor, it's not necessarily my responsibility to just go around stirring the waters. This is a topic that stirred the waters in a lot of churches. And so let me break it down for you. So the titles of the various uh, groups and 
composers are listed here for you. Sovereign Grace, Sovereign Grace Music out of Gaithersburg, Maryland, uh, was, I think, probably more uh, in the news 10 years ago than it is today. Uh, Sovereign Grace, it's a kind of a denomination. I don't know if they call themselves that. They call themselves the Sovereign Grace Movement, so they have a number of churches. And the primary founder and leader of that ministry at the time of my arrival here at Colonial was a fellow by the name of C.J. Mahaney. C.J. Mahaney was very well thought of, uh, an author, seeing many churches established. So the Sovereign Grace churches, I call them theologically bipolar. That's kind of a difficult thing to say, but I think I can back it up. So the Sovereign Grace churches claim to be uh, reformed in their theology and yet charismatic in their disposition or uh, continuationists believing in contemporary spiritual gifts, the ongoing gifts of tongues and healing. And that's theological schizophrenia because Reformed theology begins with sola scriptura, the Bible only. But continuationism teaches that there are modern-day prophets. How do you have a modern-day prophet who's speaking on behalf of God and sola scriptura side by side? That's a difficult place to be. And I think C.J. Mahaney found himself in that difficult place. He claimed to be an apostle, that he had the spiritual gifting and positioning of an apostle, modern-day apostle. So the New Testament definition of apostle includes having seen the Lord uh, face-to-face in ministry. C.J. Mahaney fell into some difficult circumstances. Uh, he wrote a book on humility, and it's kind of an irony his own denominational group or movement group turned against him and almost defrocked him. I think he's still in ministry, but he's not in the position he was, saying he had an authoritarian, autocratic uh, spirit and overmuch pride. So that kind of put things in the sovereign grace, music, and ministry arena into some measure of a tailspin. And along came a fellow who wrote a book a number of years ago, wonderful title, a really interesting title. It was called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And some of you may have read that book and profited from it. It was written by a fellow by the name of Josh Harris. So Josh Harris came along and replaced C.J. Mahaney. And then Josh Harris denied the faith. So he, he is now what's contemporarily called a Christian deconstructionist. So deconstructionist is just a fancy way of saying He's an apostate, so he's totally turned away from the faith. So there are some songs that uh, came along through Sovereign Grace, but not so many today. Stuart Townen uh, is also uh, listed here um, along the way, uh, Getty and Townen. Stuart Townen lives in England. He's growing older. <laughs> I don't know if you'd like to hear say that, but Stuart Townend had a good and a worthy purpose in his writing. He wrote How Deep the Father's Love for Us in Christ Alone. He wrote In Christ Alone alongside Keith Getty. And Stuart Townend purposefully said he wants to move from emotion-centered music to theologically-centered music. And to that we say, amen. Some of the challenge, of course, with that was the, is the stylistic challenge, which leads us to Keith and Kristen Getty. Keith and Kristen Getty are Irish by way of background. Uh, they're famous for the, this, the power of the cross, and he will hold me fast. And the Gettys are far, far and away more influential today than Sovereign Grace or Stuart Townend. They're influential. They set up their 
headquarters, if you will, their ministry center in Nashville, and they host an annual uh, music conference called Sing. And so they try to draw people into that conference, and I think it's almost a standing room only uh, conference and uh, concert venue, and they go out and they do concerts. There's some things about the Gettys that I admire, and uh, this is what I admire about the Gettys. The Gettys are living a responsive life, responding to contemporary praise music and saying it's banal, it's unworthy, it's unfit, it's not edifying. And so the Gettys are all about this. We want congregational music where we're fulfilling Ephesians chapter 5, where Ephesians chapter 5 says we're to not be drunk with wine when it's excess, but singing to yourselves. And that word there is a reciprocal pronoun, singing among yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I'm all for that. And so if you've ever been exposed to a contemporary praise service, you'll come away saying, boy, not, not a lot of deep thought going on there. Um, and it's a good thing for somebody to, and, and hard to sing. The, mel- the, the melodies are difficult to sing. The rhythms are hard to keep up with. It, just, it, it has caused a lot of people in a lot of churches across America to just give up. They go to church and the, the, the decimal level is so loud you can't sing with it. The volume is ear piercing. Uh, the tunes are unknown. And the people who are driving it from microphones are driving people away. And so the Gettys come along, good for them. And they said, no, 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 no. We want congregational music. And so they've intentionally written their tunes and their songs to be singable. And there are a lot of people that are very thankful for that. But here's where I am on the spectrum. I've never been part of a church that hasn't had congregational music that's been done well. I'm a really privileged person. I'm not young, but praise the Lord, I've never been in a congregation frustrated by ear-piercing praise music. And so I can be thankful for the Gettys while still saying, I get what they're doing, but honestly, I don't see a whole lot of correction that's necessary in the church and the churches where I've had the privilege of attending. Does that make sense? Uh, The truth is, we are blessed when our congregation sings. We had a guest here two weeks ago. We had over for uh, lunch, Brian Trainer was here for Andy Montgomery's um, ordination. And after the morning service, he was at our home and he said, there's just such a great spirit at Colonial. The singing was just so vibrant. It was just awesome. And I thought, we're spoiled because that's really true. And so thank the Lord for each of the musicians and the choir and those who lead in that way. But there's been such a movement, I promise I'm almost done with this, but this is informative. There's been such a movement about going back to congregational singing within some churches. You know, anything that's a movement, you've got to watch how far the pendulum is going to shift. And so there are some churches today who say, we don't want any special music. Because if you have a solo or a duet, a quartet or a choir, that's not congregational. And this is one of those believe it or nots. There's a fellow today that ministers at the Capitol Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., Mark Dever. And Mark Dever and John Piper together have been two of the more prominent voices on let's really make much of congregational music and we don't need all the special music. Now, if I was where they had been, I'd be right where they are. Because what they're saying is all we get is praise music and people singing in the microphones. Can't we just let the congregation sing? 
There are some who are taking this so far as to think it's wrong to have a choir, it's wrong to have a solo. And somehow they've forgotten that the reciprocal pronoun in singing to yourselves in psalms and hymns does include if one is singing to many, you're still singing among yourselves. And so when someone is singing a special number, I like to refer to it as a, a rehearsed testimony. And sometimes that's far more powerful than an impromptu testimony, right? So I don't think there's any biblical thing that says we shouldn't have special music. We call it special music or rehearsed testimonies. But that's where some of this is coming from. So where are we today? We're in a day where when you're evaluating music, you have to say there comes a time when some music enters into the common domain and the authorship of the music even begins to fade away. So we have a hymnal that has Martin Luther's famous, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I can tell you there's very little in the Lutheran church today that I admire. And theologically, I think there's probably nothing in the Lutheran church today that I admire, but I still admire A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That song has moved into the common domain, if you will. I love, it's one of my favorite songs, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, Our Great Redeemer's Praise. Charles Wesley and the, the music of the Wesleys. I am not Wesleyan. I'm not Arminian. Uh, the Wesleys were. But that music has moved into the common domain, if you will. I can tell you, I was shattered when we were reading through the book on hymns. There's a devotional book on, uh, I, can't, it's, I think it's called the Amazing Grace book. It's a devotional on hymns. Some of you have read it. And I was, I was absolutely shattered when I found out that faith of our fathers living still in spite of dungeon, fire, and sword was written by a Roman Catholic. Man, I was devastated. I thought, come on. They're the people who invented the fire and the sword. No, seriously. If you read anything about the Inquisitions, you'll agree with me. And, and yet we sing it. I love that song. Uh, all that to say, there are some songs that already by now have circled the globe and the authorship of those songs, even of the Gettys and the Townends, has been relatively obscured. And, uh, and yet we still need to say as a church, we need to be responsible. And so use or not use, here's the wrestling match. Responsible use so that I trust people who come to Colonial will go, the way that was sung, I believe honored God and if I go somewhere else and listen to it, I'm stunned that somebody could do that with that. That's a good thing. That's building discernment. But be careful. Because if you find yourself fascinated by and fixated on specific composers, even radio stations, you can desensitize your soul. You can become desensitized even by the buffer music between the preachers that you like so much. So I think the Christian needs to be discerning. And on being discerning, I trust that we're trying to model that at Colonial Hills Baptist Church um, and opting for a reasonable uh, perspective. By the way, I'll, just, I'll, I'll finish with this, I, I believe. Um, and that is, the Gettys to me are in a measure um, disconcerting um, or even frightening. Um, their, their style uh, often mimics the world and their lifestyle does as well. So uh, the Sing Conference and other uh, of their productions, for instance, back in 2015, 
they were encouraging people to come down to Nashville for a Christmas concert. And the Christmas concert was um, advertised with uh, dance and a jam session in the foyer. Now, when you're inviting people as Christians to come to dance and a jam session in the foyer, you've probably leaned into the world further than you ought to lean. And so I think there's a measure of discernment and care that needs to be given. So that's kind of where we are on that first question. Is there follow-up that needs to be had? That's longer than I expected to go. I don't set a stopwatch on these, but maybe I should. Follow-up? Everybody's, everybody's okay? Anybody awake out there? Hello out there. Okay. All right, we'll go on then. This is a whole lot easier. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 6. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 6. If you know where we're going, you're going to laugh about this being a whole lot easier, but it is a really good question, and it's one that comes up often. When you turn to the book of Hebrews, you're turning to a book that was written to the Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is perhaps the greatest discipleship book in the whole New Testament. The book of Hebrews is absolutely jam-packed with theology. It's purposefully deep theology. The Old Testament allusions and the lessons from the Old Testament that are embedded into the book of Hebrews are copious. When you come to the book of Hebrews, the author of the book of Hebrews, when you come to the 13th chapter in the 22nd verse, tells us what he thought the book was to be written to be. He speaks to his audience and he says, I want you to endure this word of exhortation. So the book of Hebrews is deep theology punctuated, they're called the parentheticals, but punctuated by very exhortational material. That's Hebrews. All with a purpose, if you're trying to find a theme for the book of Hebrews, it's probably right here in the sixth chapter, the first verse, therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. I don't think you can find a better theme for Hebrews than that little phrase. Let us go on unto maturity. So the author of the book of Hebrews is challenging believers to go on unto maturity. And he says at the end of the book, this book is written specifically to be an exhortation, to be a preachment. Now again, very rich doctrinally. And when we turn to Hebrews chapter 6, we read these words that can stagger some people. And I can understand why. It begins in verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to open shame. So now we come to a passage and we have to remember when you read Hebrews, you have to begin with a question. Is he writing to the saved or the lost? We know he's writing to Jews. So some people believe that he's writing to Jews who have almost crossed over into faith as Christians. Others come to Hebrews and say, no, 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 no. He's writing to Jews who are in the faith but are falling back into the temple rituals. Others say, no, 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 no. It's broader than that. Obviously now it's become an eclectic and universal a letter to the whole church. So to whom is he writing? Specifically, who's being addressed here? Are these saved people who can lose their salvation? Are they Jews that need to push on and be saved? The Old Testament 
analogies are thorough in verses 4 and 5 and 6. It's impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, enlightened. We can look back in the Old Testament and remember how they followed the pillar of fire, tasted the heavenly gift. We can read in the idea of they've tasted the manna. They were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. They were all baptized, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, under the cloud. They've tasted of the good word. We can remember Mount Sinai and the word of God coming down. Remember the Old Testament is peppered through the book of Hebrews. And the powers of the world to come, if they should fall away, to renew them again under repentance, they can't be renewed. So, there are some who will come to this passage, Arminian in nature, they'll come to this passage and say, see there, you can lose your salvation. Because if they fall away, they, they were having tasted, they were full of the Holy Ghost, they were knowing the powers of the world to come, but they fall away. You can't renew them because they've crucified. Now, that's a problem. Here's the problem. There are a lot of people who think you can be saved and lose it and be saved again. Right? You know that? Uh, we used to sing facetiously, there's a new name written down in glory, an erasable bond. People don't even know what erasable bond is anymore. But the idea if you were saved, lost it, got it back, and the old theology, if you've got to hold on, brother, you've got to hold on to your own salvation. Good news, John 10, Jesus is holding on to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them unto me is greater than all. No one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Philippians chapter 1 says, the one who's begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of salvation. So I believe that our salvation is forever. But there are those who say, not so fast. Have you read Hebrews 6? It says they can fall away. Yeah, but it also says it's impossible if you take that position, if they fall away, to bring them back. So if you're taking the position that this is teaching the loss of salvation, you also have to take the position that once you've lost that salvation, you can never have it back. Okay, pastor, what are we going to do with this passage? And I'm going to give you an option that I think fits the context of the book of Hebrews. First, if we look here at verse 4, I think we're looking at people who are saved. It's impossible for those who are enlightened. Come over to chapter 10 and verse 32, and let's let the Scriptures interpret the Scriptures. So who are these people that are being addressed in Hebrews chapter 6? Well, they're the ones who were enlightened, Hebrews 6 and verse 4. When you come over to chapter 10 and verse 32, call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst you were being made a gazing stock, both of reproaches and afflictions. After you were illuminated, after you were enlightened, who are the enlightened ones? They are the believers. So you come back to verse 4, and it says, and you've tasted of the heavenly gift. Well, you'll find that same picture being painted back in chapter 2 and verse 9. In fact, Hebrews 2 and verse 9 says, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Well, he's not speaking about unbelievers when he's talking about tasting the heavenly gift. The heavenly gift was the death of Christ given for all who believe. And we're made partakers of the Holy Ghost. All right, now I'm back to chapter 3 and verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, that doesn't sound like an unbeliever. 
Hebrews 3 and verse 1, is he addressing unbelieving Jews, Jews that are almost there? He calls them holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Yeah, this sounds like a believer. In fact, in chapter 3 and verse 14, he says, for we are made partakers of Christ. You're partakers of the heavenly gift. That's Christ. Are these believers? Or unbel- They're believers. How do we know? Well, he continues on. They've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. And if they fall away, they can't be renewed unto repentance. Now what's going on there? Did they lose their salvation? Here's another opinion, and it's mine. So the analogy that the book of Hebrews is built on is this. The children of Israel are in Egypt. They come to the Red Sea. What's the Red Sea a picture of? I hear it. You're whispering it. You can be confident. Salvation. It's redemption. The children of Israel cross the Red Sea. Egypt is behind. Egypt is a picture of the world. And yet some of them want to go back to the leeks and the garlics in the world, right? Now they continue on, and as they continue on, they come to the Jordan. What do we typically think of the Jordan as being? On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast out wishful eye. Right? So what do we typically think of Jordan as being? Death and going over to heaven. Let me submit to you that's false. Okay? As the children of Israel came to the Jordan, they were looking over at the promised land, that's true. What was in the promised land that caused them to say, I'm not going over there. (laughs) Giants. I'm not going over there. They pulled back. And when they pulled back, what happened? They wandered in the wilderness. They lost the blessing. I, I would submit to you that the Jordan River is a picture of where the Christian is challenged by the Spirit of God to step out by faith. And we can have that happen to us every day. Trusting the Lord to help us when we face the AIs and the Jerichos and the giants. The Jordan River is that picture. So if we take that picture and apply it to the book of Hebrews, what's happening here? He's saying it's impossible if they fall away to renew them to repentance. They came to that point where they could enjoy the victory in the Spirit and the blessing that God would give. But they've pulled back. So I would define this not as a believer who's lost his salvation. I'm going to define this this way. This is a believer who lost his consecration. And they become a wilderness wandering believer. And the world and the church is full of them. Now wait a minute. Can they never get right with God again? Of course they can. First John chapter 1 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But there are some victories that you'll never have the opportunity to enjoy again. There are some crowns that you'll never have the opportunity to win again. There are some opportunities to serve the Lord that only come around once. And those opportunities may, may in fact, I think this passage is saying they're going to be lost. So there are some wilderness wandering believers. And this passage, I think, is addressing them. And so he says, well, what have they done? They've crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh. They put him to open shame. The believer has a responsibility to walk in the Spirit, not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And when we fulfill the lust of the flesh by our actions and our deeds, who is shamed? The Savior who bought us lock, stock, and barrel. And I think he's speaking to them in this passage. There's 
a little bit of a picture of this. If you come over to Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, you know the passage there in verse 15 where it says, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place in repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. What had happened in the life of Esau? Esau realized that he'd been tricked out of the birthright, that Jacob took the birthright, and Esau couldn't have it, right? And so when he came back and said to his father, bless me, father, bless even me. The, the, the time of opportunity of blessing had passed him by. It could not be restored. And so you see the same type of picture that the author of Hebrews is using when he said he found no place in repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. But here's a question. Was Esau still Isaac's son? Yes. He was still in the family, but he lost the blessing. So I think the, the book of Hebrews in summary is this. It's written to believers. It uses the picture of the Old Testament to motivate as, as believers. Don't be a wilderness wandering believer. And when you get to the parentheticals in Hebrews, every one of them will cause you to scratch your head. But if you come to those parentheticals in Hebrews and look at them with that lens, that we're looking here at a challenge to true believers not to pull back and be a wilderness wanderer, the book of Hebrews suddenly makes sense. So you're not looking at a passage that's talking about losing your salvation, but you are looking at a passage that's challenging you. Don't lose the blessing that you'd have if you persevered in service for the Lord. That's a great question. And I think the follow-up on that question was from, where is it here? There it is, Romans 11. So let's go there, Romans 11, verse 22. Romans 11, verse 22. Remembering the purpose of Hebrews, Hebrews 6 and verse 2, let's go on, let us go on, let us go on. Not held, hung up by angels or Moses or the Aaronic priesthood, always persevering. So when we go to Romans chapter 11, verse 22, it says, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you'll be cut off. Well, that'll put the brakes on you real fast. So, if I don't continue, am I going to be cut off? Again, this would be a verse that some will go to to say you can lose your salvation. But this is another one of those passages that you put in its context. Who's, to whom is he writing? And what is he writing about? Chapter 11, verse 1, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. I am an Israelite of the tribe, of the seed of Abraham, rather, of the tribe of Benjamin. And so as he continues on, verse 11, he says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, this is Israel, the fall of Israel or the, uh, the blindness of Israel, salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are of my flesh and might save some of them. So he's writing about two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. As he writes about the Jews and the Gentiles, you remember the context, he says the Jews are the, are the vine 
and the Gentiles as a branch, they've been grafted in. But God hasn't forsaken the Jews altogether. And in this passage, when we come to verse 22, he's not speaking about individual salvation being lost. He's challenging the Gentiles to consider the goodness and the severity of God on them which fell is real severity. But toward you, you Gentiles, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. He's talking about God's working to the Gentiles, the church age. It's going to come to an end. But he's not talking here about the loss of salvation of individuals. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. That's the Jews coming back. God is able to graft them in again. Long question. Long an- longer answer. Questions on the question? Salvation to be revealed in the last time. Does that also answer that? So, uh, Avery's referencing 1 uh, Peter 1.5. So, let's turn there. This is one of the greatest assurance passages, I think, in God's Word. There are words that cause a lot of people to be provoked. There's no way you can take them out of the Scripture, so let's just go ahead and start with them. 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. He's talking about places near the Black Sea that are in the news tonight. That's where these places are, Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. These strangers, that's a beautiful word, peripedidimos. A stranger, a peripedidimos is a para means around, and pedidimos is to walk. Those who are walking around, but have been scattered, verse 1. The word scattered there is diaspora. So these who are walking around in that northern region, far from their homes, these strangers scattered are elect, verse 2. And the word election is one that causes provocation in a lot of circles. But this is a word being used by God to remind us of the stability of the position that we enjoy. These strangers who are scattered are still elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit and to obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away. It's reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. So we're not kept by our own power. Those who are elect are kept by the power of God. I think that's a wonderful verse of assurance and no doubt gave a lot of assurance to the persecuted believers near the Black Sea to whom Peter is writing. Through faith unto salvation, ready to be reeled in the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So I, I think of this passage as a real securing passage, Avery. It's a good passage. Okay, let's press on, shall we? Let's end on a high. This is a, I think we can jump through this pretty quickly, but I, we sang songs about heaven tonight, so let's end with heaven uh, this evening. Where in the Bible do we find what we will experience in heaven? For example, will we know and interact with loved ones and historical figures? Will we know what's going on in the earth Will we be consumed with God's glory and worshiping Christ? So that's a question I'm going to break down in parts. Where in the Bible do we find what we'll experience in heaven? Nowhere. What? I'll give you a couple of references. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9. 
eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of men the things that God has prepared for them that love Him. There's no possible way for us to ever absorb the glories of what we'll experience in heaven. Psalm 16 and verse 12 says that thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. You want to define pleasures? 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul said he was taken up into the third heaven and he saw things that were illegal against the law for him to come back and even share in Scripture. So, being kind of rough with this question, but where do we find what we'll experience in heaven? If you're asking about all the glories of heaven, it's not for us to find even in Scripture. It's bigger than your mind and your heart and your emotions can ever consider. But by the grace of God, He's given us glimpses, little peaks and foretastes along the way of exactly what this questioner is asking. For example, will we know and interact with loved ones? Of course, the book of the Revelation tells us in chapter 21 and verse 4, God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. There'll be no more sorrow, no more parting. What a day that's going to be. Revelation 21 and 22 gives us a bit of a panoramic view, but it'd be like standing up on Mount Nebo for Moses and looking over without having the blessing of walking along the trails of the promised land. You can get a big picture, but you never get the the joy of the reality. And so if you're looking for what heaven's going to be like, there's no better passage to meditate on than Revelation 21 and 22. And when it comes to the question here specifically, what about loved ones? Will we know them? Yes, yes. In Matthew 8 and verse 11, Jesus says, many will come from the east and from the west and will sit down with Abraham and Moses in the kingdom of God. Sitting down, we won't just pass them by on the streets of gold. We'll have fellowship with them. Will we know them? Yes. In Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus was transfigured, Peter, James, and John saw Moses and Elijah, and they, did, they didn't just see a shadow. They saw Moses and Elijah. Will you know them? Yes. The song says, friends will be there I've loved long ago, and they will, and we'll know them. In 1 Samuel chapter 28, Saul was having a bad day, if you will. He went to the witch of Endor, and his day got worse. Samuel showed up, and it was really Samuel talking to Saul. Will we know them? Yes. Just as we will sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom, just as Saul knew Samuel, just as Peter, James, and John knew Moses and Elijah, we will know them. Well, what about the final part of this question? Will we be consumed with God's glory in worshiping Him? Yes, but Revelation 22 and verse 3 says that we will serve Him. So there's an awareness, there's an occupation, there's a busyness, not floating around on... Uh, you know, Cloud Charmin strumming a, a harp. Uh, we'll be serving and we'll know one another, but reality is, I'm going to say it again, to God be the glory, we will never be able to adequately portray the splendors of heaven. Praise the Lord. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast. Thank you.